Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors, and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Sarah Beth. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. As I was sharing with you before we hit the record button, I have not been warmed up for several weeks. I uh, have taken a couple of weeks off to catch my breath on some other things at the college and on my writing project and my console, everything else that we've all got on our plates. Um, but uh, I'm back in motion this week, having this conversation and looking forward to another one later this afternoon. So I'm delighted to be here on the podcast with you, Sarah Beth. Um, how about before we get started, before we dive into our conversation, I just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Do you want to do some vocal exercises before you start? If you're feeling, my mother was an opera singer, so I know the importance of getting that that nice round tone <laughs> oh, going. <wow>. If you... <laughs> 
<laughs> we can yeah, do a little I, of that um, now. It's it's not it's not the vocal exercises. I mean, I've got the vocal stuff down. I can you know I I speak. I I, I had class this morning. You know, I was teaching with <laughs> students, so I can I can jibber jabber and run my mouth all day long. It's the uh, it's sort of the it's the interviewing sort of. Um, you know, keeping a conversation going for 45 minutes is my, is kind of where you got to get warmed up on. So, and staying focused too. So whatever you're going to present to us, Sarah, here in a few minutes, it's staying focused on that without rambling about something else silly. So tell us who you are. Sure. So it's Sarah Beth. I'm not really from the South. I was born and raised in the Detroit area, and I'm super proud about it. Uh, Talk about Detroit any chance I get. And as you just heard me say, my mom was an opera singer. And so I have always had a reason to be connected to fundraising in one way or another. Anybody who has a parent who works in the arts knows the importance of having people who support the arts. So that was, I don't think that was a, an intentional uh, uh, tract for my mother to, to get me involved in fundraising at such a young age, but it was, an, it was a lovely, happy, uh, unintended consequence. My father, on the other hand, used to tell people, if I had known that she was going to get so good at asking people to give her money, I wouldn't have bothered sending her to college. So, <laughs> but uh, this is year number, I'm not going to say, because then that makes me sound old. It's more than 20 <laughs> years doing this, <laughs> and which is amazing uh, because I clearly, uh, I don't know if people, if people can't see me, but clearly I look no older than 25 at the most. Uh, started as a small job and I have worked in, I think I'm, you know, ticking back through my experience. I think I've worked in lots of big areas of fundraising. And by that, I mean, international fundraising, international development, uh, conservation was very, very lucky early in my career to have an opportunity for work to work for the amazing Jane Goodall. And that was really my first time in the chair as a director of development I've worked in healthcare, I've worked in the arts, obviously, and have really learned so much from so many of those sort of niche markets within fundraising and really, really excited about the way that I've been able to pull things from all of them and bring them to to the work that I'm doing now. I'm based in New York City these days, but always looking for reasons to have projects outside the city. And I'm excited about what's next, seeing the next generation of fundraisers coming up, seeing the way that people are coming into the field. I stumbled into fundraising, and I think that it's a a great place for people to land who are committed and passionate about things, but really bring an amazing business savvy and business acumen to the nonprofit community. I love that you... I, I love that your dad, you, you were, you were just referring to your dad. <laughs> yes. I love that your dad knows what fundraising is. I remember when my father, <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember when my dad, this is early in my fundraising career. I'm on that other side of 20 years as well. And, um, and there's actually a, there's actually a level of confidence that perhaps comes with once you get on the other side of 20 years and any, probably any profession. Um, so I can appreciate that other side of 20 years. Uh, comment too, but the idea that your dad, so my dad once described my job. I, I don't know why he did this, but he he told somebody that I was in mergers and acquisitions. He was trying to, <laughs> <laughs> he 
he was trying, trying to make to, you sound very important. Yes, he was trying to make me sound totally legit. He was trying to put it in the perhaps the you know the commercial sector. I don't know what he was trying to squeeze me into, but he told me at one point this was probably five years into my career that he said something along the lines of mergers and acquisitions, and I said, "No, Dad, I don't do anything that looks like that." <laughs> So I can appreciate. So your dad really does understand what you do, huh? My father passed away about 20. Wow. It's longer ago than that, but about 20 years ago now. Yeah. And uh, I used to. So, yes, one, he understood it completely. And two, he was part of my best focus group. When Uh I would be working on a new project, whether it was a new campaign, an annual appeal, whatever it was. Yeah, I had I had a country club club test and I would pitch whatever the tagline of the campaign was or the the elevator speech. I would pitch it to my dad and I'd make him go out to all of his golf buddies at his country club and road test it for me. And if he came back and he said, yeah, they're so excited, they think it's great. I knew I had a winner. And if he came back and was like, Nobody really knows what this organization that you are working for is doing. And I tried to tell them the thing that you told me. Then I would say, okay, back to the drawing board. That's <laughs> and it, I'm not kidding you, bat, batting a thousand. If my dad could, could share it with his golf buddies, uh, admittedly a bunch of uh, older white guys um, in the Midwest. But if my dad could yeah. share it with his golf buddies and they, and they got it, I was, I had a winner every time. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I bet, I bet there's a lot of us in this space, but there's a lot of us in this space who've struck, you know, we, we, perhaps we've gotten on the other side of 20 years and we have found it and we have found it particularly important to um, develop uh, that, that appreciate, you know, from our sort of our network of, you know, friends and family, the people sort of not in the fundraising space, but people who sort of live around us and spouses and loved ones and family members and moms and dads, if they understand what we're doing, that has to be a pretty phenomenal affirmation to to the legitimacy of what we're trying to do. Um, Sarah Beth, we invite our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. I don't know what you, what you've brought to the show today to talk about. Um, it keeps me on my toes and it also makes for a pretty good conversation. What do you got for us today? So my big idea for the day is that we're going to call it. I don't know if we're going to call it that, but my bold opinion, (laughs) my big idea for the day is that we should stop as nonprofits and people in the philanthropy space. We should stop giving away the power that we have by divesting from companies that we don't like. There's been a big okay. move in philanthropy in the last few years, particularly in the environmental space, around yeah. yep, around divesting from oil and gas companies and things like that. And I think that that is giving away the power of the sector to affect change. So I think we should stop doing that. So is that... Okay, is that something along the line? Because I saw the I saw a conversation last week. Uh, add some clarification to that because I saw some sure. conversation last week about the um, and this is this what this will be a new conversation. I, we're creeping up on three hundred episodes. I don't think we've been too far down this path, but there was the conversation about whether or not, you know the whole Facebook narrative and whether or not we should be advertising on Facebook and stuff. Is that along the same lines, or am I am I going down the wrong path? Wrong path, but certainly related to people okay. who've invested in Facebook. So, okay. you know, where this came from um, for me in thinking about it 
is that because I started work, as I mentioned in, in my intro, I started my first director of development job working for Jane Goodall. Yes. And amazing, amazing person. And when I worked for, for Dr. Goodall, we were very careful about who it was we took money from specific yes. companies we wouldn't deal with, specific sectors of the economy that we wouldn't deal with, that Dr. Goodall really felt were bad actors in right. the conservation space. And that's always been something that has been in the back of my mind. And when I work with specific organizations, I always ask them and I say, are there groups that you don't want to take money from, right? If you work with children, do we not want to be taking money from uh, manufacturers of certain kinds of goods and certain services, right? right? Um, and I saw an article, I don't know, a week or 10 days ago, maybe, about the fact that the Ford Foundation, an organization that I love, by the way, um, lest they give up all my grants, uh, but but I really do like so much of the work <laughs> that they do, uh, was making a decision to divest their endowment holdings from oil and gas companies. Right. And I thought that was such an interesting decision because as I was, so I read the article in the New York Times first and then sort of moved over and saw another piece a day or two later, I think Wall Street Journal, but it may have been Financial Times. Anyway, saw a couple of pieces over the course of a few days. And what I thought was, is that the right strategy? And I don't think it is. And so that's my bold opinion that if philanthropy in general, and if and if people who work in philanthropy and work in fundraising decide not to divest themselves from groups that they think of as bad actors, but use that leverage to make change, that we could be in a much better place than simply washing our hands of an organization that we don't like or that we think we don't like because it doesn't fit our yeah, mission. Is, yeah, isn't there basically there's basically like three prongs to this because like what I was talking what I was referencing with Facebook. So there's the decision to take money from, right? Yep. Take money from mm -hmm. Facebook or take money from oil and gas. There's exactly. also the decision to utilize sort of in the middle, utilize those platforms or utilize those services. So there's the like mm -hmm. for example, do we use Facebook as a Exactly. As part of our strategy. And then there's also the endowment question, which is also thought I, that's the other th uh, direction I thought you might be going, which is yep. what you just referenced. Do we invest when we've got holdings, say in an endowment, do we invest in those, you know, companies, mm -hmm. for example? And I think, but I think there's a deeper, there's certainly a deeper element of this. And I talk about this with my students over at the college. Isn't Sarah Beth the question I think the nonprofit sector for so I had this conversation with my client yesterday um, before I left, before I came home, I had this conversation. We were talking about the idea that the nonprofit sector always is. I'm of the opinion that the always the nonprofit sector is always sort of mimicking either the, the, the these two big powerhouse sectors in our economy that either they're either trying to behave like the government or they're trying to behave like the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know how to. Like for you to make this suggestion, don't invest in oil and gas or don't invest in Facebook or whatever. Right, exactly. Um, is almost like a reaction that you you know some of the reaction that they're going to get it. They're going to say, "Well, we can't do that. We don't know how to do that." But I think in some ways, I think the 
know how to do some things that are perhaps unique to us, have the confidence to do what we can do really well and demonstrate it that it can be done, right? I think that's absolutely right. And and you're right. It's all it's all part of one conversation because you're absolutely right. Are we going to utilize companies that we don't like, like Facebook, yeah, to do the things that we know we have to do for our jobs as fundraisers, that we're going to be putting out those those fundraising requests. We are going to tell the people we just this weekend in New York had the New York City Marathon. And a lot of people who raise money in New York City do it through people who are running in the marathon. Yeah. And they raise money and they do, and they put things on their Facebook pages and they put things on their, their, you know, they do a, a, a Facebook fundraiser that links them to their marathon page and all of those things. And so it is, it's all part of one discussion, but I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you're talking about whether or not we can we can as come a sector, up with, yeah, yeah, do things we, that we do well. Can we? Okay, you remember the narrative that was going around probably about a decade ago. I remember I was in war. This was actually more like fifteen years ago. It's kind of around the time that Dan Pilato was doing his TED Talk and stuff. And there was this whole narrative about op- behaving like businesses, and I just don't buy it. I think the nonprofit sector has got to have the. And so we 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 have these underlying assumptions that we either behave like one of these other two sectors, and one of them is is like for example if. So the assumption is, is that if, 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 if investing in oil and gas or taking money from the wrong foundation or taking, or, you know, using Facebook platforms is the way that the, the, the world works that we have to do it. But I think in some ways we've got to have the nerve to not do it and demonstrate that it can be different, that we get, it can be done differently. That's, that's sort of the inherent risk that I think our sector is unafraid, should be unafraid to take. And we've, not developed enough organizations that are willing to take that risk. Like we, we're supposed to be the sector that should know how to do things differently. Is it know how to do things differently or is it, is it the boldness in general? That was, that, you know, that was yeah, sort of my question, thing. right? Like, yeah. 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 Same that thing. Was, I mean, uh, yeah, same thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that, you know, what I felt like in reading this article about Ford. And again, going back to my time working with Dr. Goodall and working with other organizations, and I don't want to make it just about Dr. Goodall. It's other organizations that I've worked with that, you know, don't want to invest in gun manufacturers and don't want to invest invest in uh, chemical companies and don't want to, like lots and lots of groups, right? So it's, and there's so much expertise in our sector that could lead us in a different direction. And some of that boldness, I think, is what's missing. The person who is the chief investment officer at the Ford Foundation, and I don't want to name him by name because I don't, it's not about shaming him. It's just this person has such skill to manage that endowment yeah. that if Ford wanted to retain those investments in oil and gas, but yeah. leverage their position to change something about the way that those companies approach the environment, yeah. they could do it. And they have the acumen, they have the knowledge within their own portfolio. They have the knowledge within their own program staff to be able to say, hey, we're a shareholder in your company and we're a significant shareholder in your company. You know, 
their collective endowment right now is well over a billion dollars. They can make so a you, difference. Okay, so do you want them to disinvest? That was the word you started with, I think. Do disinvest, you want them, yes. Yeah. Do you want them to disin do you actually want to take do you want them to take their money out of the company that they don't want to be invested in? Or do you want No, them I want to them to start, stay. Right. You want, want them, them to, to hang around and start. Okay, but that's the sec that's the okay, that yes, that's the underlying flaw in the sector is I don't think that we think so. I remember I remember my, my graduate school invited me back a number of years a couple of years ago to speak at an event. And I said and I made this comment. I said, Why aren't we the ones hosting the parties instead of being the ones that are always eager to be invited to the parties? Like, mm-hmm. why can't the nonprofit sector have the confidence to be its own? Stand up on its own two feet, not define itself by everything that we can mimic like the other folks. Um, and I see it swing both ways. If you're if you're not trying to behave like the commercial sector, you know, like the for profit sector, you're trying mm-hmm. to basically use coercion and forms of taxation, and you know, basically you're basically using, you know, I, I see us trying to behave like the, they do down in Washington as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, maybe some of this is just going to work itself out if the, as the as the sector continues to sort of mature. Um, yeah, I think I, it, I like that. I like where you're I going. See, no, see that's and that's why I think it's the bold idea. I think you're right. I think that rather than try to leave things right, rather, rather than try to to walk away from it and walk away yeah. from the power that we could have. Yeah, we can bring our skill and our sensibility and all of these things into these spaces. And you're right, not act like a for-profit business, Uh act differently and say to an oil and gas company or any company with whom, you know, we're doing business with whom we're invested, any of them and say, here's how we can make you change as a sector and make you better. Is this a problem within um, – so in my seminars, Sarah Beth, I teach – we teach this concept that fundraising sort of exists in a subculture in relationship to its dominant – so the or most, the way I see it, you've got nonprofit organizations sort of exist. You have this dominant culture, which is sort of centered around the mission itself, whatever the organization's doing. And then fundraising sort of sits off in the corner like this subculture and we're donor-centered and all this stuff. But it never sort of morphs into the actual dominant culture, and I think that's why some of the issues that we have. But is some of what we're talking about – a consequence of the nonprofit sector. So is it emerging from the, the, like that, that dominant culture um, or is it, is, is some of this inherent in what, how we approach fundraising because fundraising is always sort of, have have we sort of always had our hands out too much and um, sort of being in that, there's a, there's a woman that teaches um, Jennifer McRae teaches philanthropy at Harvard. And I remember her being, you know, talking about in her book about the idea that we shouldn't be the supplicant, this person who's always got their hands out. Why are we always in that posture? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, exactly. instead of, in, and, and why not instead see ourselves as having clout and not feeling like we've always got to drop names from these other places. Um, and, 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 and like you said, in influencing the decisions of, I mean, gosh, wouldn't that be a whole different paradigm? Th- that would change That's, job descriptions too, and it honestly would change the types of people I think we'd employ too. I think it, it would change a lot. That's part of what you get. That's part of what you're suggesting. 
That is exactly what I'm suggesting. <laughs> is that that is that is exactly? But that and you're right. That's the paradigm shift. So I know Jennifer. I've read her stuff, and I when I thought about this, I did. The first thing I thought is, are we giving away our power? Our the cloud, power that yeah, we could have. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That we could have, I mean, fun, fundraise, yes. I mean, fundraisers are, are always the wicked stepchildren, right? We're always the ones who are just like, oh, get the money. We don't want to know. You know, the real work is over here with the mission-driven program people. And, yes, you know, yes. you're, right. And you're over here and you just go and beg for money. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, but, but imagine if we weren't always, you're right, weren't always supplicants, if we weren't always with our hands out, if we were saying, we have this investment in your company. We have this investment in your business, in the business yeah. that we bring to you, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, oil and gas, uh, you know, DuPont, all of these things, right? And we're going to, as a sector, come to you and say, be better. Here's how we're going to help you be better. Here's how we're going to make Facebook better and more responsive. Here's how we're yeah. going to help. Here's how we're going to help your company. serve people better. And I think that there's a way to do that. And I agree with you. I do think, and we have the, the thing is we have within the sector, we have the experience, the very people who won't take money from companies that they perceive of as being bad actors in the environment are the very people who have on their program staff, mostly environmental scientists who could help the same company be better actors? Okay, here, here's a deep thought for you, uh, Sarah. Okay. Um, here's a deep thought for you. And I'm not going religious on you here or anything. Oh, it's... Is part of the problem... Just, just, I'm totally just sort of, this just come to my mind. Yeah. It's part of the problem that we have to stop thinking like we got to be, and I'm not going, uh, I'm not being masculine here. It's just the examples have to happen to be patriarchal here, but it didn't, these, these are all men. Is the problem <clears throat> that we keep looking at people like Steve Jobs, Jeff, Jeff Bezos and stuff, or we look at people like Obama and President Biden and, you know, we're looking at all, we're looking at politicians and, and successful business people and we're not looking at the Pope. I mean, isn't the Pope like probably one of the single most influential people on the planet and that we need to sort of look the context in which we're, I mean, he doesn't the Pope sort of fit within the nonprofit sector better than those other two and that we don't know how to sort of be within the context of what is a, an, a, a different type of economy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because he's got a hell of a lot of influence on this planet. Um but I don't know that we know how, and I'm not trying to say that we all need to become little popes, but, but do you know what I'm, do you follow me? No. If you think about those kinds of figures and it's not just the Pope, it's charismatic leaders. It's thinking about the Dalai Lama. It's thinking about other people that are, you know, it can be anything. No, it's not a religious. It is who are the best kinds of social influencers. Yes, yes. Right. Who are the best kinds of people who are leading? So, you know, uh, uh, you like to imagine uh, somebody who would be, I mean, you think of John Lewis, the late Congressman John Lewis. Yes. Right. Yes. And think of him as somebody who would be in that charismatic figure, right. Just like what you're talking about with the Pope, right. That, that somebody yeah. who is in that space 
and brings that, I, I don't know, I, you know, I'm hesitant to say that that's who we should all be looking up to always, because I think that there are good things about people who are truly self-made. I'm just trying to get that. I'm trying to get at that boldness and that clout yeah. that you're that you're describing. So, so, so that I keep my share, so that I keep my endowments and holdings, right in that oil and gas company. I also have to have the posture of someone who who can who can in some way the way I would see it, and it's the same sort of coaching conversation I have with my clients. You have to be able to stand peer to peer. And I think Jennifer McRae would teach this too. You have to be able to stand in that room peer to peer with whoever that is that you're trying to influence. And so if you yes. don't know how to do that, you know, so you have to see if, if you're trying to influence the CEO of ExxonMobil, you're going to have to see yourself that way. And, yes, and you're going to also have to experience the world that way. And like the president, I mean, and granted, the the, gen, the gentleman I, I I've read his book. The, the gentleman who's at the Ford Foundation now. I read his book six months ago. Darren um, Walker. Darren Walker. A Darren Walker can stand in the room, for example, with the president of you know, with the CEO at Exxon Mobil, and, and he's the pro. Okay, so use Darren Walker as example. Forget the Pope. Let's start. Yeah, <laughs> Darren Walker needs to be that. Regardless of where, whether what side of the political spectrum we happen to be on, and et cetera, et cetera, Darren Walker's posture in the world is perhaps what we need to um, uh, uh, aspire to achieve individually and collectively in order to be able to maintain those holdings, have that clout, and be that bold. Am I right? You're absolutely right, and he's not the only one. I mean, when you think of, you know, and some people do it well. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, who are splitting but keeping the foundation, yes. um, can stand in that space, right? Can sure. stand in that space and say to ExxonMobil, um, again, politics aside, George Soros stands in sure. that space and says, yes. Darren, but think of the biggest community foundations you know. Silicon Valley Community Foundation uh, presently has the largest philanthropic endowment in the country. They could, with all of that behind them, stand in a space and impact things, not only on a corporate level, but in their community. We're the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. If we want to do things that we think improve Silicon Valley or Northern California or the state of California very broadly, they have the clout to say that now, again, they're a community foundation and we all know their model is a little bit different. They have lots of donor advised funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they could stand in that space and be equal with any business leader in the state of California. Equal. Okay. You've got to help right. me find and, and, these. Okay. You've got to help us. <laughs> who are the, okay. Who are these people? Cause it's interesting that you went to the, it's interesting that you went to, um, um, Bill and Melinda Gates, because mm -hmm. the other one, the other one, um, um, uh, Scott, uh, uh Mackenzie giving, Scott. Yeah. Mackenzie yeah. Scott. Jeff so Bezos' ex-wife. Yes. She, she, she's the, the thing about the thing about Melinda and Mackenzie, for example, um, cause I'm interested in to, to see who some of the, who are the women in our space who can do this because we've been talking a lot about a lot of fellas here for the last few minutes. 
the the thing about McKinsey and Melinda isn't that they're on the other side of the transaction, on the other side of the exchange. How do we get nonprofit leaders? Jane Goodall, for example, as you as you've started the conversation with, was on the receiving side of these exchanges, and the work that Jennifer McRae is doing at or has been or was doing at Harvard when I was was familiar with her, um, she was talking about you know leaders in these institutions. So who are the who are the I've got a lot of women who are, I'm sure, listening to the podcast right now. Who are the women on the receiving end of these exchanges who are who are receiving gifts from perhaps ExxonMobil CEO? Who are those mm-hmm. individuals? I think you can start at universities. Right. Like my pre- like we have a we have a woman who's the president of our local college. I mean, she's extremely talented. And we see a lot of women who have been for quite some time moving into those roles and running these institutions a lot better than some of us fellows have. Um, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to say I wasn't going to say anything. I can say that. that. I can say that. <laughs> I tell my students that all that. I told a young lady that this morning. I told I told I told her today. I said, I, I've watched that. We, we work with a lot of uh, K through 12 independent schools. And I see a lot of women running these schools a lot better than I see a lot of the men that I see running these schools. But but how do we get? Is there something, Sarah Beth, about that? That say that female leader, who is, yeah. who is stand, who, who is she, who's standing shoulder to shoulder, peer to peer in the room with that ExxonMobil CEO, like who the hell is that? Saying I'm not going to pull my money out of your. I'm going to. I'm trying to tell you to do things differently. That's a bold person. And those women are out there. I mean, I would say, if I was thinking about those people. I would start, yeah, I feel like I would start in education just because so many large Uh endowments are controlled by universities. So I think about like Donna Shalala at University of Miami. Okay. Right. That's a huge endowment. There's no reason uh, that, and obviously her background, former presidential administrations, all of those things um, could lead I'm trying to think about other large. Does she have too other- many. Does she have too many? Like our president, I think our president here at our small liberal arts college where I teach, I think part of her challenge in being bold, I mean, she's brilliant. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant, but she works for a board that's all white men. She's an African. <laughs> she's, terrible, yeah. she's a ter- terribly talented African American woman running our school really well. Um, but she works for a board, and I'm wondering, like the woman that you just referenced down at the University of Miami, is she working for a board of old white men? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, they... I, I assume I, I have a, I have a, I have a personal problem with the University of Miami because of their football team. Uh, I'm not yeah. a huge football fan, but that's you know, but that's my problem. That's not their problem. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the woman who recently stepped—well, not recently, 2018. Everything is different with the pandemic. Uh, yeah. There was an amazing woman named Risa Mori who was the Uh CEO of Robert Wood Johnson foundation, right? Now that's something Robert Wood Johnson. That's family name in our business. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, she's somebody that I can see. Um, The woman who Casey Coleman, who used to head up the foundation that supported the Nobel peace prize. Um, She passed away a couple of years ago, but um, again, an amazing person who could have stood in that space and said, it's the Nobel peace prize. <laughs> I had a, I had, you know, it, 
I so, had a guest. I had a guest. I had a guest on the podcast about six months ago, nine months ago, maybe. She's a she's a, a Latino woman in Southern California, and she got on here, and we were talking about how fundraisers need to be bolder in our posture and in our interaction with donors. And in many ways, she was basically saying this. So the same dynamic that we might would expect of say a college president. Mm-hmm. With the president of you know at Exxon Mobil is the same dynamic that she was basically talking about about how we would assert ourselves when sitting across the table with a major donor who wants to take a decision in the wrong direction. And mm-hmm. I remember some of the responses that I got to that conversation because I think some of what and 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 I, I remember someone said to me once that her, this young fundraiser described her job as sort of being a concierge to the rich and famous. And I thought, who the hell wants that job? Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. But I think that's I think that's what some of these people and anybody who you know anybody who works with me and understands my fundraising philosophy we're not we're not concierge to the rich and famous you know we're going to sit peer to peer with this wealthy individual who perhaps can change the direction of your organization but you're not going to kiss their ass right you're helping them you're educating them i think of my role is as as an educator in those spaces to say you have something you want to accomplish with your philanthropy yeah i can help you accomplish that but you're right. I'm yes. not doing that by taking you to lunch. I'm not doing that by carrying your bags. I'm saying right. if you have a real if you have a real thing that you want to accomplish, then let, talk yeah. to me about what you want to accomplish, and then we'll work on that. Yeah. You know, right. it, again, to go back to 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 Jennifer at Harvard. I mean, Drew Gilpin Faust at at Harvard, right? I mean, she was the president of Harvard. <laughs> she, you're telling me the woman who's the president of of Harvard University couldn't stand in a room with right. the CEO of Exxon. Of course, of course I'm she sure could. She, yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, I think it's, I think whether, or I think that you're right. Some of it is who are the other people to whom that person is responsible. So in yeah. some ways that makes the Melinda Gates job or the Laureen jobs or Mackenzie Scott, yeah. right? Because it's, because it's their money. And, See, I and think at the end of the day, envy. even though they, yeah, I, I think there's an envy, like I appreciate what those women are doing, but I think there's an envy and sort of a, almost like a fascination, sort of like a mm-hmm. spectacle when we sort of watch what Mackenzie Scott's doing. <laughs> but I right. want to know who like Mackenzie Scott is giving to a lot of HBCU schools, for example, and some of these other institutions mm-hmm. that she's choosing to give to. I want to know who's on the other side. I want to know who's on the receiving end, who's figuring out how to navigate that relationship with Mackenzie. Like who's getting in T- tell me who the woman is who's leading a large institution, for example, Who's getting into McKinsey's head and taking that gift of 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 whatever and taking it to another level? Introduce me to that person because that's who I think is world changing. If you if you you follow what I'm saying, no, absolutely. And that person should be they're not, but should be as empowered. And that's why I was thinking of of Drew Faust at at Harvard. Right? Is that that person's taking the money that they're getting yeah. from? Right. And doing something amazing with it at Harvard. Um, yeah. We hope yeah. and we hope that all of these, but I, I'm more, I'm more interested in who's standing in the spaces because I do think you're right. I think part of it is whether they're women or men, the people yes. who are standing in the spaces have to come with a confidence that is, we're not just going to walk away from the problem by divesting. Yeah. We're going to, 
stand in the arena, right? That's it's there's lots of quotes about being the man in the arena. So maybe it's a man in the arena, maybe it's the woman in the arena. I don't know. All right. But if there's if you are the person in the arena, you always have more ability to affect the outcome, I think. That's my bold yeah. opinion, as opposed to saying, I'm washing my hands of this. I don't like this. And so I'm going to walk away. But if you stay in the arena, then you really can move the needle. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but that's where you're really being, you're really being able to manifest the change that you want. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So Sarah Beth, I think what to sort of sum this up, I mean, basically we're talking about the idea of how can we be bolder on that when we're when we're in those receiving postures, you know, we're on the receiving end of these charitable gifts coming from wherever mm-hmm. they are, and how can we be more influential and bolder? I think that's a pretty, um, you know, fascinating thing about these conversations. We never know where they're going to go. We land in all sorts <laughs> of interesting places. Um, you provoke my thinking. I'm very grateful for that, um, Sarah Beth. I'm sure you've provoked somebody else's thinking today. They probably want to reach out to you and probably put some names in your head, and you can loop back and tell me who they told you. Um, a lot of my I guess get more follow up on you get more follow up than I do on these conversations. So when they want to reach out to you, how would you suggest that they do that? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can reach out to me there, and I am I am on social media far too much. So when they reach out to me on LinkedIn, I will absolutely follow up with them. And uh, yeah, it'll be the middle of the night, but it'll be fine. That's fine, Sarah Beth. You are always welcome back. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Take care. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.